Good morning. We are moving away from our regularly scheduled study in Acts to take some time off for the Advent season. We're going to take uh, four Sundays. We're going to be looking at what I've called Songs of Salvation. Um, the particular song that we're going to be looking at today might not be technically a song as in the Psalter, um, but it's in the Old Testament and it's from the prophet Isaiah and it's a very famous passage and it was certainly put to music. In fact, as I read it, some of you will sing along. It just happens. It happens to me every time that I hear these words. So uh, let me go ahead and read the passage uh, from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Uh, we'll read that and then I will pray. Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time... He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when, the divide, divide, when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for these words of hope, uh, these words of glad tidings of the birth of the Messiah, the coming one who would be mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, uh, wonderful Counselor. Lord, we thank you uh, for the Lord Jesus to whom these words pointed. And Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to study them, and we ask that you would show us Christ more clearly, that we would rejoice, and we would sing with joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. These may be some of the most famous words in the prophetic passages of Scripture. I'm not, I'm not sure there may be other ones that come to your mind, but in my, in my estimation, these are, these are some of the most famous words in all of the Old Testament prophetic literature. And if you're like me, as I expressed, you, you, you sort of hum those words from Handel's Messiah. Um, wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And I'm going to get to these glorious words in a moment. Um, and these words of hope and comfort. But before we get to those words, we really need to reckon with some other words. The words that come before our text, the words that I actually did not read, that are in chapter 8 uh, of Isaiah. And I'm just going to look at them briefly. Well, we're going to take a little bit of time, more time than I probably normally would. But I want us to dwell there on those words. And the reason we don't know those words is because, to be frank, they're all doom and gloom. 
you go back to Isaiah chapter 8, the chapter right before uh, this chapter, it's all doom and gloom. Things are bad and dark. And I want to paint a picture of that. Because I think it's in painting the picture of the doom and gloom that we'll actually be able to understand the glory that is revealed in chapter 9 more clearly. And so let's take some time right now to just highlight the doom and gloom and then we'll look at the glory. So the gloom of chapter 8. Uh, sometimes we forget that the prophets, prophets like Isaiah or um, Jeremiah, especially the writing prophets, were real people. They were people. They had wives and children, and they, they lived in a certain place in a particular time. And Isaiah is a real person living in this period of time in the 8th century, um, in a very tumultuous time of Israel at that. Um, and he had a wife. And he had a child. That, I don't know if that should surprise you. Probably not. I mean, that's pretty normal. Um, but what's strange is the name that's given to the child. If we go back to chapter 8, the name here is Meher Shalal Hashbaz. That's a, lot, that's a mouthful. Um, that was the name that he was told to give to this to this son. But what's even stranger than the length of the name and all the syllables is what it means. The name given to, uh, to this young son of Isaiah was this. It meant, hastening is the booty and speeding is the prey. That's a strange name. Hastening is the booty. What is booty? Well, that's like, you think of pirates' booty. It's, it's what is stolen, and, and it's the wealth of one person that is grabbed and taken for another. Uh, it is, hastening is that, and speeding is the prey. Uh, and what does this all mean? Well, we'll look at that in just a moment. But it's weird, right? It's a strange name. Uh, we just had a baptism, and if the Hans had named Abigail Maharshalal Hashbaz, hastening is the booty, it would have been awkward. <laughs> but nothing in the life of a prophet of Israel was off limits for God to use, and God was going to use the name of this baby as a prophetic word to the people of Israel. So, what does it mean? What does this kind of strange word mean? Well, you have to understand something about the situation that Israel found themselves in. It is the 8th century BC. The people of God are divided into two separate nations. You have the northern kingdom of Israel, ten tribes, and Judah, uh, Benjamin in the south. And there's wickedness. The, the, this was after Solomon uh, was king, that the kingdom divided, and there was all sorts of wickedness. There was uh, idolatry, and there was abuse, and there was uh, uh, all sorts of things that went on amongst the people of God. And one of the, the wickedness was the division itself. And the wicked kings of the northern kingdom were attacking the southern kingdom at this time. They were, they were raiding Jerusalem. In fact, they were allying themselves with the people of Syria. The people just to the north of them. Not Assyria, but Assyria. But Syria. And I'm, I'm clarifying those two names because we're going to come to Assyria in just a minute. But this is Syria. Do you catch that? Assyria. Syria. 
So the northern king, along with his allies from Syria, are coming down and attacking Judah and Jerusalem. Right? If that's not enough, in the midst of this uh, situation, uh, Isaiah speaks to Ahaz, king of the south, king of Judah, king in Jerusalem. And Ahaz refuses to listen to Isaiah. We'll enter into this whole toxic situation, civil war, civil strife, idolatry. Enter in a great nation, Assyria, under the king of Tigliath-Pileser III. Now, that's a lot. Tigliath-Pileser III. Assyria was ravaging the area of Israel, particularly up by the Sea of Galilee. Galilee should ring a bell in the New Testament, right? And in our text, we read about Galilee. It's, it's come up. And we read it earlier in our readings, uh, this term Galilee. It's, a, it's an area to the north of Israel, in the north side of Israel, on the sort of the, the fount, if you will, of the Jordan River. The Jordan River runs south along uh, towards uh, the Dead Sea. And there is Galilee. And in this region around Galilee, this Assyrian mighty warrior king comes and um, is ravaging that area. So, the northern portions of Israel had already been seized by Tiliath Pileser III, yet both the northern and southern kingdoms refused to repent of their wickedness, and they continued to try to appease the Assyrian king. And it's into this mess that Isaiah is speaking. David and Solomon would have been in utter shock had they lived to see the state of God's people. Civil strife. Alliances with wicked kings. In fact, Ahaz, instead of listening to Isaiah, will go to this Assyrian king and give him tribute so that he'll attack the northern king. You see the wickedness and the strife? Well, back to this baby named Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Or better, hastening is the booty, speeding is the prey. Isaiah said to Ahaz, before this baby could say mommy and daddy, before the baby was old enough to say those words, Assyria was going to wash over the north, utterly wiping it away. And then it was going to come sweeping down through all of Judah, and the water was going to come up to the neck of Judah. What would happen is that eventually, all of Judah, Israel would be gone, all of Judah would be uh, under the control of this Assyrian king, and Jerusalem would stand like an island, surrounded. And that was what Isaiah was telling them. Isaiah was speaking words of judgment, of almost complete destruction. In fact, we know this happened. After the north is wiped out by Tigliath, his successor, Sennacherib, attacks Judah and Jerusalem. Hezekiah, you can read about it. I'm not going to go there, but Hezekiah is holed up in Jerusalem. And there's an amazing story there. If you want to go back into the book of Kings, you can, you can read uh, about um, Hezekiah and his fight against the Assyrian army invading. But I'll leave that story for another time. The point is that Ahaz and the northern kingdom were facing God's judgment 
on account of the rebellion and sin. So, Isaiah says to Ahaz, Be broken, you people, and be shattered. I told you it's doom and gloom. It's what he says to the people of God, to the king of Israel, to the northern and southern kingdom. He says, be broken, be shattered. And ends with these words in verse 22. He says, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into darkness. This was what was going to happen. Sure. It's, it's actually hard to imagine a more dark period in the life of God's people. All sorts of strife, all sorts of war with one another, all sorts of idolatry and false worship. And yet in the face of all of it, the people refused to turn to God. Instead, they turned to their oppressor. It's what Ahaz does. Instead of saying, Okay, Lord, I repent. Lord, be merciful to us. Lord, be our Savior. Lord, come and deal with the situation. What does he do? He, he pays tribute to their oppressor, who then comes washing down like a river. You can read about it. It's all in chapter 8. I didn't quote it all. They were in complete darkness, like the blind leading the blind. Um, I thought whether I should share this illustration or not. Seth's already smiling. <laughs> he already knows it's not about him. But it's about his brother Matt and myself. And Matt's nodding his head now. They had no warning about this. But when I was probably in junior high, we were, um, we used to, it was actually a really amazing thing. I, through my uncle, I had a connection with a, a blind, deaf man. This is back in the in the like early '90s, late '80s, early '90s, and we would go on the computer, and this deaf-blind man had, and he lived in D.C. and he had, and we lived in Connecticut, and he had this machine, a TTY machine, I think they're called, and we could type and talk to him, and he was so happy, he loved to talk because he couldn't normally. And one time in the summer, Matt and I were just thinking about what would it be like to be completely blind. And so I suggested to Matt, why don't I walk you around as if you're blind and I'll just be your guide. I had eyes. I should have been able to see. But So I'm leading Matt around and I run his head into, the, I think it was a boat hanging off a car or something, but he smashed his head. And it was like those cartoons where the knot just kind of grows on the head straight up. It's like the blind leading the blind. The only problem, I wasn't blind, but somehow I was foolish in my leading. The foolishness and utter blindness of the people of God is palpable in this story. Like Rob Gray, junior high boy, leading young Matthew Mancini around by his hand and making him hit his head. But much worse. I wonder how different are you and I? How different are we? I think we often look back on the Israelites and think, how could they be so foolish? 
It's our fallen nature to turn from God and to turn to our own devices. I think this is at root who we are. We are at root rebels. That is, apart from the grace of God, we rebel against God. When He says A, we go towards B. This is who we are. We are like blind men trying to find our way. Friends, some of you have not come to terms with this rebellion in your own heart. Some of you sit here this morning who have not come to terms with this. You, 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 maybe the whole Christian thing is, is a traditional nicety for you. It's something you do because around the holidays, around this time of year. But it's not something that grips your life. It's, it's something that harkens back to another time, another age. But it has not impacted you. You still live in that darkness and that rebellion of your own heart. Some of you... It might be a novelty. Something to be studied, but not something to be owned by you. Some of you, Christianity is a nuisance. Something you've grown up with, but you feel shackled by, and all you want to do is run the other way. Whatever the case is, this is rebellion. And the kind of warnings that Isaiah utters to Ahaz and to Judah are for you too. There is only darkness and gloom and anguish when we fail to see our desperate state. When we fail to recognize that we are at heart, apart from the grace of God, rebels. Sinners. And that we need God to save us. Believers. You're not immune from rebelling either. How often do you find yourself choosing to dismiss God's Word in favor of your own way? How often do I turn to God in prayer or turn to His Word in the face of various hardships and trials and even when I'm confronted with my sin? How often do I look to, to Christ? How often am I... That's my first move. Not often enough, is it? More often than not, we double down on our sin, don't we? I do. We seek wisdom from every corner of the world, and we dismiss God. We're like the blind, leading the blind. Well, it's into this darkness and gloom that God shows His glory. And now we come to our text only halfway through the sermon, right? We finally get to the glory, the good stuff. But I don't think we could have understood it as well had we not dwelled in the gloom first. Well, God takes the gloom and He transforms it by shining the light of His glory into this world. I want to dwell on this light for our remaining time this morning. And we'll just kind of run through this way. Uh, The first thing to note about this glory is that it is all grace. It's all grace. God would have been justified in letting those waters that had risen up to the neck wash over and never return to salvation. They deserved it. They rebelled. They were in opposition to God. He could have left them to their devices. But He doesn't. In the text, there is nothing commending these people to God. 
And yet, what does he say? He says this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. That area that was the first one to go down, the area that had been wiped out already by Assyria. The prophet Isaiah is prophesying that glory is coming for them too. Grace. No because... No if then, no signs of turning from sin from the people. It's a declaration. There will be no gloom. Grace. God's undeserved goodness to us. We who are rebels. Wallowing in our own self-deceit and self-destruction. Grace. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. The light of God has shone. It is something that is given to us by grace. The second thing that we notice is that our oppressor, our enemy, is destroyed. The people of Judah and Israel at this time faced all sorts of enemies, right? Enemies from within, they're fighting each other. Enemies from without, the greatest oppressor uh, of the, the world of that time was uh, this king of Assyria who was coming down and he was fighting Egypt, he was fighting Babylon, he was fighting Israel, he was destroying everything in his wake. All sorts of oppressors. But their greatest oppressor was their own sin. It was the thing that separated them from God. If we were to read through the book of Isaiah, at root was this idolatry and rebellion. Tigliath was just a proxy. Sin was the real oppressor. And it is this enemy that Christ himself destroys on the cross, is it not? It is his work that crushes sin and death. Our enemy is destroyed. The third thing that we notice is that peace is established. And I'm going to dwell more on peace in just a moment. But this was a nation that was torn apart by war. Uh, uh, We can look around the world right now and we can see all sorts of wars that are tearing apart nations. Look at a place like Syria, devastated by internal war. The bloody garments and boots of war that are described here and all the weapons of war were real, tangible things. The promise is that these things will be burned up, they'll be no more, that they'll be used no more, done away with. One thing that's abundantly clear is that the promise of Isaiah 9 are far grander, far greater than can be accomplished by any earthly king. And so it is in verse, the next verse that we are introduced to the only one capable of such complete restoration and salvation. So fourth thing that I want us to see is that we see the light of God. A child who is born. A son who is given. It's interesting. We started this sermon talking about a son, right? Isaiah's son had the funny name. Awkward name, a name that signified judgment, that signified God's displeasure with his people. 
was nothing like this son, was it? This one, the son who was to come, was the one who would be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Attentive hearers in the day of Isaiah would at this point would have understood these words to be referring to the Messiah, to God's anointed, to that greater David, to the king who would come and establish his kingdom as an everlasting kingdom. This is what they looked forward to and they hoped for. Those who were attentive, those who still trusted in the Lord, though they may be few, they were there and they would have heard these words and they would have said, that son is somebody that will establish something that is grander than our wildest expectations. Again, uh, these names that are given, so much better than the name given to Isaiah's son, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Um, these names are names that relate to a king. Okay? That's important for us to keep in mind as we read them. They, they say something about the kingship of Christ. So when we hear them, they're in reference to his kingly traits. First, let's just look at them, each four of them, and this is where I want to. I will spend the rest of our time and then conclude. When we hear them, remember that idea of kingly traits. Wonderful counselor. What does that look like in a king? Well, it's the one who rules with all wisdom and prudence, whose counsel is perfect. The perfectly wise and just king. That, that, imagine hearing that. You have Ahaz who goes and makes alliances with wicked kings. You have the northern kings who make alliances with other wicked kings. Where is wisdom? When I think about my own rebellion, maybe its greatest manifestation is thinking that I know best. Who else is with you? Who all here knows best? You don't have to raise your hand. But I know that I do. Isn't that how we function? What kind of pits have you fallen into on account of that reasoning? That you know best. What a hope that we have a king who has all wisdom and counsel, who knows the past and the present and the future, who loves us and cares for us, who gave his word to us, wisdom, who was himself the divine word of God. Wonderful is the only description that is possible for someone like him. Wonderful. Mighty God. Literally, uh, the word here, mighty, is the, is, the, is the word for hero. Hero God. The one who is our champion. Do you struggle with sin? I do. All the time. How we struggle to obey. How we find ourselves defeated over and over and over again by the same thing, day in and day out. God is a hero, a mighty warrior, an undefeated champion who has conquered sin and death itself. And he's God. He's not just a hero. He's a hero because he is the divine one. He's not just an earthly son of David, but he is the man 
God, God, man, who can come and who can defeat death and sin itself. He is mighty God, everlasting Father. Now, there might be some confusion here because aren't we talking about the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God? So what does it mean when it says everlasting Father? Isn't that something that would be used to talk about uh, our Heavenly Father, the, I'd say the first person of the Trinity? I'm going to go back to my beginning thing that I just said or at the very head of these. Remember, these are names describing the Messianic King and his qualities as king. So what would it look like to have a king who is like a father? What does that look like? As a king, he cares for us with all love and gentleness and care and discipline and instruction and protection. Those are all the things that make for a godly earthly father. What would it be to have a king who is like that, who cared for us perfectly, who showed that kind of love and gentleness and discipline and instruction and protection and all the things that go along with being a father? And isn't that what we need? That kind of love and care? Finally, Prince of Peace. At the heart of the issue for the people of God at this time was lack of peace. Everything around them was war and tumult. And at the root of the issue for all humanity is this issue, lack of peace. It was Jeremiah who says, uh, you, have, you cry, peace, peace. Or he said, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And isn't that how the world cry, cries peace? This time of year, you will go from store to store, from place to place, and everybody will say, peace, peace, and you will turn on the news, and everyone will say, peace, peace, and then you'll look, and you will see, where is it? If you look across the globe, where is it? When you look in our country, where is it? When you look... In our homes, where is it? When you look in your hearts, where is it? You see, the greatest divide, the one that needed the most work, the one with all the other ones, the ones that we just talked about, the the wars in the distant lands, the wars in our own state and country, the wars in our houses and the wars in our hearts, all of those are subsidiary. They are uh, beneath. They are part of a greater conflict, the conflict that is between us and God, the one that we have been at war with since Adam and Eve in the garden rebelled. The greatest divide is between God and man. And His wrath is against those who would rebel against Him. And it is war. It is war. And this war has a sure victor. And it's not us. It is into this world into this gloom that Isaiah spoke these words of glory and he shall be called the Prince of Peace 
Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts. When you see Lord of hosts think Lord of the host or the heavenly army. The one who is with whom we have strife and enmity and we're at rebellion with. This Lord of hosts is going to do this thing where He's going to bring peace. He's going to establish a relationship. and He's going to make a kingdom. And it's going to be for sinners like you and me. When the angels sing, peace on earth, they're speaking of this child to be born. The Son who is none other than the living God. He came as the light of the world to bring us peace. Not the kind they talk about in the news, but the kind of peace that was purchased through the death of this great hero God. The kind of peace that doesn't end. Friends, as we come to this season and we think about all these sentimental things of peace on earth, goodwill towards men. and It's not sentimental. It's our hope that God's divine grace was shown in that manger in Bethlehem that He, he sent His Messiah, His chosen one, to come and to make peace between heaven and earth, between us and God, so that we could be called children of the Most High, that we could be called citizens of the Kingdom of God, that we could be called loved. Do you know that peace? Or are you still walking in darkness? The blind leading the blind. Isaiah was calling Ahaz to repent. Because there's hope in a God who would save us by giving up His only Son, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we struggle with rebellion in our heart. We struggle to see our need. We struggle to go to You for help. But we thank You for the light of the world who has shown into the gloom and the darkness and who has given us life. We thank You for the hope of Christ. We thank You for this wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, this Prince of Peace whom You sent to rule and to reign and to restore and to establish His kingdom here with us. It's too wonderful for us to conceive, and yet this is what you tell us in your word. We thank you for the grace that you show us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for this time of year that we can be reminded of the hope and the longing uh, of the Messiah from long ago. And Lord, we thank you that you brought him And you sent him, and he came, and he lived, and he died for us. We just thank you for this time. We pray your blessing on it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.